This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, I would like to go over our usual shout out to all of our listeners. It is because of you that we are one of the biggest podcasts in Ohio. You have made us number two on Evergreen Network as well as number two on KillerPodcasts.com. With your help, I know we can get the number one. All you have to do is just keep doing what you're already doing keep sharing our podcasts with friends and family, and keep supporting us on patreon.com slash Ohio Mysteries. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Ohio Mysteries. Please also leave us feedback on our episodes. If you have any take on any episode, email us at feedback at ohiomysteries.com. And who knows, you might hear your feedback on an upcoming podcast. So, Let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories at the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. When Roland Hudson moved his wife, Anna, to Kansas in the spring of 1912, He was hoping to put some distance between themselves and problems haunting them back home in Canton, Ohio. But just seven weeks after setting up house in their new western community, they were brutally beaten to death in their bed. At first, detectives felt certain it was a case of unrequited love, that an old sweetheart of Anna's from Akron had followed them cross-country to exact his revenge. But when that theory fell apart, the case went cold. Years later, true crime researchers wondered whether the young couple had been targeted by one of two different axe-wielding serial killers who were riding the rails throughout the Midwest that year, killing entire families who lived near train depots. This is the story of Roland and Anna Hudson. Our story will end in Kansas, but it began in Stark County, Ohio. 
Roland Hudson, his sister Grace, and his brother Ira were born to Mr. and Mrs. J.S. Hudson in North Industry. That's a hamlet in Stark County's Canton Township. Today, people often refer to the area as Canton South. Their father was a prominent attorney. He'd even been a friend of the late President William McKinley, serving as counsel on cases both with and against him. The Hudson children attended the public schools in Canton and attended church regularly. And after Roland graduated, he took a job at an auto factory working a grinding machine. But young Roland developed a medical condition. Some news reports said the steel dust had begun to affect his lungs. Later stories referred to Roland as having consumption, a word often used to describe tuberculosis. Roland needed to find a new job. And frankly, he also needed to find a new city. Because by then, things were not going well with him and his new bride. Anna Axe. That's spelled A-X-X-E, was one of several siblings born to Mr. and Mrs. Jacob Axe in nearby Massillon. She and Roland married in April of 1910, but by some accounts, the honeymoon was over barely after it had begun. Roland and Anna bickered all the time. Some said it was because Anna, who had been pursued by more than one gentleman, continued to be the object of others' attentions. And, quite possibly, Anna wasn't discouraging them strongly enough. Some believed the young and energetic Anna had also grown weary of her husband's wasting disease. The newlyweds separated briefly. Roland left Anna and traveled to Kansas in the summer of 1911. Anna remained back home in Canton working as a housemaid. It may be that Roland had gone ahead to scope out a new home for them both, a hope at a new start. He found temporary employment with a local railroad company and worked for a few months before returning to Canton that December. When Roland headed back to Kansas the following spring, Anna went with him. Roland picked up where he'd left off, taking job assignments, mostly with the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railway. Anna arrived a few days later and found work at a packing company. It was April of 1912. Roland... 22 years old, and Anna, 21, celebrated their second anniversary in their new home. They rented a house in the city of Paola, the seat of Miami County, less than an hour's drive south of Kansas City. Their five-room brown cottage was just two blocks east of the train depot on West Wea Street. They bought a few pieces of secondhand furniture and settled in. Over the next two months, their neighbors came to think of them as good people. They paid their rent on time and diligently went to work every morning. Honest and industrious, 
two important traits to the folks of Paola, Kansas. Unfortunately, they wouldn't get the chance to learn much more about the Hudsons. On Thursday, June the 6th, about four in the afternoon, three neighbor ladies grew curious that they hadn't seen either Roland or Anna. The Hudsons had been there long enough that people knew their routine, and it seemed strange that neither of them had gone to work. Also troubling them was that a fourth woman, Mrs. George Coe, said she had heard cries coming from the Hudson's house the night before. It sounded as if somebody had been struck down, she said later. It was a woman's voice, I am sure. Still, she hadn't thought much of it until she learned no one had seen Anna that day. Mrs. Music, Mrs. Stump, and Mrs. Pryor knocked on the Hudson's door. When they received no response, they pushed it open and peered inside. They could see all the way into a back bedroom where there was a bed. And on the bed, the outline of two forms lying still beneath the covers. Just then, Deputy Marshal Herman Hintz came by in his buggy. The women hailed him. Something's wrong in there, they told him. Marshal Hintz and another neighbor, Fred Hogan, stepped into the house. Reaching the bed, they could now see the blanket was covered in blood, and beneath it, they found Roland and Anna. Roland was lying on his right side. The exposed side of his left head and face had been crushed with repeated blows. It appeared he had died instantly. There was no sign of a struggle. But Anna must have saw what was coming. Authorities guessed she had been awakened by the attack on her husband. She lay askew on the bed and had been struck on the back of the head. Whatever the weapon was, it also left several holes in Anna's face. Detectives guessed it may have been a brick mason's hammer or a coal pick, though the weapon was never found. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Because there were holes on the top side of the blanket, investigators concluded the killer had thrown it over the couple after they were already incapacitated, then beat them again. They theorized the unusual act may have been an attempt to limit blood spatter. Today, behaviorists might say it was because the killer knew the couple. But the bed itself was saturated, the pillows, the sheets, the cover. The mattress itself could hold no more, and the blood dripped through it and onto the floor in a pool beneath. By the time the Miami County Sheriff and Coroner reached the scene, a huge crowd surrounded the little house. What happened to the young people that had come to make Paola their home? 
the coroner sent the bodies to a nearby funeral home to await an autopsy. Newsmen who had leeway to roam the Hudson's house reported on what they'd found. The living space was spartan but tasteful. They commented that Anna was a neat housekeeper, everything in order. In the front room, the Hudsons had hung a few pictures on the wall. There was a straw mat on the floor and a square center table. In the bedroom, Anna had arranged various jewelry and trinkets in little baskets on the table next to the bed. On Roland's side of the bed, a pair of overalls lay on the floor where he'd stripped them off. In the cottage's kitchen was a blackened cook stove, two chairs, and a table set with supper dishes. Another room contained a wash tub and a washboard. Yet another room held a few small pieces of furniture and a closet with the couple's clothes neatly hung. As detectives investigated the case, they learned much more intimate things about the couple. Roland and Anna had not been able to leave their troubles back in Ohio. They were still fighting. On Memorial Day, about a week before the murder, they'd had a doozy. Roland even left for a couple of days, staying both nights at his job site. A co-worker of Roland's, George Coe, said he saw Roland and Anna that Sunday. It was the day Roland was returning home after having been away. The pair were at the train depot down the street, and Coe heard Anna say, How could you go and leave me this way? To which Roland said, You have not treated me right, Anna. Coe didn't need to know much more to understand what they were talking about, because during Roland's absence from home, he confided to Coe about their problems. Roland said he'd caught his wife with another man three times and that there was a man in their life who would always be a shadow between them. Coe told Roland if he didn't think he could live with Anna, he should send her back home to Canton. Roland said he didn't have the money, but there was something else in the way. He pulled a letter from his pocket and said, If you knew half of what was in this letter, you'd know what's troubling me. I'm afraid to send my wife back home. I'm afraid for her, afraid for myself, because there would be a terrible lot of trouble. Still, Coe told police the night that Roland returned, he and Anna were acting happy. He saw the two of them working together in the little garden in the back of the house. They were laughing and Roland was singing. Investigators were also looking into the story of a stranger in town. The Tuesday before the murder, a man walked into several stores in town asking where the Hudsons lived. He was described as weighing 160 pounds, ordinary in appearance, with a dark mustache and wearing a dark blue coat and a straw hat. A grocery salesman told police he saw such a man board the same train that he took to Paola the morning of the murder. And another man said a similar person came to his place of work asking for a job, but then failed to show up for work the next day, 
which was the day after the murder. Was this man the same one Mr. and Mrs. William Pryor saw? Pryor lived next door to the Hudsons, and he said the night of the murder, around 9 p.m., he saw a man talking to the couple on the porch. He'd asked Roland and Anna if he could speak with them, and they invited him inside. It was the last time the Hudsons were seen alive by anyone other than their killer. And then this strange story. A Mrs. Joseph Longmire said a flashly dressed man about 35 years of age attempted to sell her magazines that Wednesday, and when she declined, he grew angry as he left. About midnight, she was roused from bed by the sound of a falling lamp globe in the dining room, and she reached the room just in time to see a man disappear through the back door. On the floor was a kimono. The news report said the dress belonged to Anna and surmised the killer had worn it to conceal his identity after leaving the house. Detectives told reporters the actions at the Hudson home were methodical and premeditated, not at all the result of a hasty quarrel or a sudden impulse. There was no indication anything had been taken, so robbery was ruled out as a motive. Was there some personal grudge at work here? Police thought so. A week after the murders, a Kansas City detective traveled to Akron looking for a suspect at the top of their list. Among Anna's belongings, they had found a letter from Roy H. Adams. It was received just a few days before the murders. Was this the letter Roland had told his friend George Coe about? There was no way to be certain. Over three pages, Roy Adams spilled out his love for Anna. My dear sweetheart, he began, I am becoming desperate, for true love cannot be trifled with. Later, the letter sounded ominous. People have been killed for less, and more may follow, he wrote. Don't get the idea this is a threat, or that I mean it for a threat, because this is the real thing. In Akron, with the help of Akron police, the Kansas detective learned Adams had gone to Chicago in early June. He'd sent someone a postcard from there. But they also interviewed people who said prior to leaving, Adams had gone to Canton and had asked about for Anna's address. Had Adams stopped in Kansas on his way to Chicago? It seemed like a really good lead. But as good as it was, it quickly fell apart. Adams' employer said he was at work in Canton the night of the murder. And the next day, several witnesses backed it up. So, if it wasn't Adams, who killed the Hudsons? There was a new theory that gained some interest a few years after the couple was killed. And then another similar but different theory proposed just a few years ago by a pair of true crime authors. Turns out, there wasn't just one but two serial killers in 1912 who were riding the trains throughout the West and the Midwest and killing families that lived within a block or two of train depots, usually using axes or similar tools. 
The first one seriously considered was a man named William Mansfield. He was an army deserter, ex-convict, and a drug addict who went by the nickname Blackie. Police said Mansfield was in Paola, Kansas, the night the Hudsons were killed. Four days later, in Villisca, Iowa, someone used an axe to kill the Moore family, a husband, wife, four children, and two neighborhood girls who were spending the night. All eight were struck with an axe. The Burns Detective Agency said Mansfield was in town at the time. And two years after that, Mansfield's own estranged wife and infant child, as well as his father and mother-in-law, were all killed with an axe in Blue Island, Illinois. I mean, that sounded like a slam dunk. But police could never gather enough evidence to charge Mansfield in any of those cases. The other option was offered just a few years ago, when two researchers published a book called The Man from the Train. They proposed a suspect named Paul Mueller. The authors counted 59 potential victims from 14 different incidents, the Hudsons among them. They concluded Mueller always invaded households near train depots so he could hop the train and move on quickly and that he annihilated entire families or whoever was in the home. In his lifetime, Mueller was absolutely a known suspect and was the subject of a manhunt in one of those cases. But, best as I can tell, he was never captured. The story of Anna and Roland Hudson ended where it began. After authorities released their bodies, Roland's father traveled to Paola to get them. He took them back home to Canton, and they were buried in the city's West Lawn Cemetery, where President McKinley himself was laid to rest until he was later moved to the adjacent McKinley National Memorial. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, Hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. I promise you will not be disappointed. Paula has put a lot of work into that page. You'll be able to find any of the episodes you are looking for, any of our Akron Beacon Journal crossovers. We'll see you here Wednesday, and then we'll see you back here next Sunday for another episode as well. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.